autism, where affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Happy New Year from Affect Autism. We have one of my favorite returning guests, Maud LaRue from Pennsylvania. She is here to speak today about something that we've scattered into some of our other podcasts, impulsivity. Now, what do we mean by impulsivity? We know that lots of kids on the spectrum have struggles with controlling their behavior. And you guys have heard me talk all the time about my son struggling with impulsivity. And it's just so hard for him to wait. It's just so hard for him if he knows he has to do something, he knows certain protocols, but he's just so impulsive, he, he can't really control that. So Maude had mentioned to us in past episodes that it's relating to timing and sequencing. We know that it's part of the fourth functional emotional developmental capacity in the developmental individual differences relationship-based model, the DIR model or DIR floor time. And there are other things that Maude LaRue as an occupational therapist uh, brings to the table. So welcome back Maude and thank you for spending the time today. Thank you for having me. So uh, what, what do you think is uh, the best place to start with such a broad topic of impulsivity? It is a broad topic and I think an important one. You know, um, there is so many different thoughts and feelings about it and there are at least four to five different theories on impulsivity. I just checked on the internet before our discussion today. What were the other people saying? From, and does it differ from what I was going to say and help you with today? But it was, it's pretty much the same pieces that, that comes to light. And it's, um, there's a neural flavor. There's a cognitive flavor. There's a, um, an adaptive flavor to the whole process of impulsivity. Um, do you want me to just dive in and um, give you the... the the, the definition part. Sure, absolutely. Um, go ahead and if I have comments or questions, I'll let you know. Okay, so impulsivity. Um, I always ask um, therapists that I mentor and I'll say to them, okay, so you told me in the report that the child is impulsive. Why is he impulsive? Well, Maud, he's impulsive. Um, it's a behavior. I'm like, yes, why is he impulsive? right? No behavior is without a reason. And I think many of your listeners probably have heard me say that before, um, that we always have to chase the why. Impulsivity has to do with an ability of my prefrontal cortex not to be able to exert enough or sufficient inhibition over my nervous system so that I could wait. That is like a little nutshell of something we probably can talk about for the next week. So in that, there lies a lot of different um, spaces in between. So some of the theories talk about it as a cognitive behavior. Like I have a, um, it's a decision-making process and there's a will behind making the decision not to wait. Um, and that that cognitive decision uh, um, can be um, dealt with in a cognitive way, in a cognitive strategy with like a reward system or, um, you know, just giving a, yeah, just a negative or a positive reward. And, uh, and uh, personally, I, I think that's completely wrong. Um, I know that even neuroscience has disproven that. And I know Dr. Gordon Neufeld talks about um, a lot about how, you know, 
impulses happen. It's not, it's not something you can decide. The impulse and the emotions come up. And then what you do is afterwards, and he talks about the prefrontal cortex as being the mixing bowl where you get to that developmental stage where you can, um, you can decide, like on the one hand, I want to swipe that person's coffee and spill it over. That's my son likes to do, spill things. Not as much as he used to, but I want to, uh, or want to take my little PJ Masks figures and whip them on top of the fridge. But on the other hand, I know that it's against the rules. And holding those two things together and then making the decision. But that impulse, <laughs> that impulse is, is very strong. So I'll let you continue because I, I have a feeling you agree with me. Absolutely, Daria. And I'm, I'm not surprised that we agree with each other. The, um, what are we saying? It's an impulse. An impulse is something that's instinctual. It is really quite far removed from the cognitive process. Now, it doesn't mean that in the good solid moment after the impulsive behavior have occurred, that I can't sit down and have a great discussion and the child can understand completely what it is that he did or did not do. But in the moment is where the impulsivity occurs. And so in that moment, we have at least three different areas we want to think about um, before we talk about what can we do about it, right? And the first area is it is nervous system related which means that the nervous system has to mature in a certain way in order to give that to us. Now, the executive pathways in the brain, if you want to be fancy, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex pathway, the LPFC, that pathway is stated by research to only really fully develop by the age of 21 to 24, depending on which research you're reading. So, which means that we do have, at least from five months, I think Barclay is saying after, five months after utero, is when your executive function starts developing until about 21 to 24 years to fully develop the control necessary to grade your impulses. So that's one part. The other part is if it's developmental in nature, it means that the nervous system has different stages that it has to develop through in order for me to gain that maturity that I need to do. So it's a two-part process there. It needs maturity, but it also needs these stages, these building blocks. And then the third part that we want to consider is that it's also connected to the whole process of what we alluded to in the previous podcast, the, the aspect of timing. It's about delayed gratification. It's about the fact that I can't wait. I want it now. And right there, we lie in a big conundrum, Daria, because today, in today's society, I can go out right now and get the sandwich I want. I can go out right now and pick up the Nikes. I can just click on a button and Amazon delivers within two days. Everything happens quick. The whole society is running at a quicker pace. Everybody complains about it. And yet the child has to find themselves within that society. So number one, they don't have maybe necessary developmental building blocks to really meet and match the, what the society is asking of them to do. And then when they're in the moment and they get the urge to have something done right now, they do not have the, the, 
the development necessary to be able to understand what five minutes waiting means. So it becomes, it's a, it's a two-edged sword. It, it goes both ways in, in that regard. And those are the three components I think that is relevant for me every time that we do an assessment of the child and we're thinking about impulsivity. It's interesting. And um, if I remember correctly, you said um, you get the impulse and you have to decide if, if you want to do it or not, or you want something right away. And, and with my son, sometimes it's not even that. It's that he just does it without even thinking. Like it's just so automatic. And even as he's doing stuff, he will be yelling, don't do that stuff, <laughs> whatever the stuff is. Um, don't throw this on the fridge as he's throwing it on the fridge. Um, but it's, it's, and it happens so fast. Like he'll be sitting totally peaceful and like within a split second, it's like, and then he goes back to his seat. Like it's like this super impulse urge that he caught out of this corner of his eye, something that was there in the place that he doesn't want it to be. And I'm throwing it in the other place as fast as I can. It's just such a fast impulse. Who would even have time to stop yourself? <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's a real drive. And I think the key point that you said is that it's developmental. That's you right. can't expect him to control himself when he's developmentally not there yet. And that's the hardest part is people think he's being a bad boy because he's 10 and he should know better. And we told him 8,000 billion times and he even knows don't do it but he's still doing it constantly. That's right. And, and part of that is, is what some theories also talk about as sensory seeking. Mm -hmm. but it gives you that huge big sensory input. And we all know sensory is, is, is primal brain. It's not cognitive brain. It's not the cortex area. It's the subconscious area. Um, so, and when amygdala is involved with the, the fight and the flight and the quick response that comes from that, you know, we're not even accessing sometimes the DLPFC so we can even get to a decision-making process. So when a child is, mommy, 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 right? And then, can you wait, honey? Can you see I'm talking to this lady? Okay. Mommy, 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 honey, I'm still talking to this lady. Can you, you know? But that word wait has got no weight in the child's life, right? For them, it's just like, I, I don't know. Think about that child that's always asked the parent, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And then five minutes later, are we there yet? Honey, we just answered you. But the child has no recollection of what that passage of time was. I think we talked about that when we talked about time and regulation, we talked about on that podcast. So I think part of the whole sensory seeking part of the theory of impulsivity lies in the regulation system. That is really the foundational piece that needs to be addressed before you'll make any dent into impulsivity. And what people mistake is that they think that, okay, once I've worked on regulation, now the impulsivity will be gone. No. So parents say to me, Maud, we've done this work. I mean, we've worked how long now on regulation? We, the child's behaving so much better, but this is the one thing that still doesn't go because it actually comes a little bit later when you start talking about timing and sequencing and practice. That is really where impulsivity can be thwarted. Just let's think about it for a minute. You get, like you say, don't throw that car on the refrigerator, right? You get that idea, that thought. Now that thought has to go over into planful behavior. If I don't have praxis or understanding of sequence, then I don't have access to planful behavior, 
which means that for me, the biggest reward I'm going to get for my sensation seeking is if I do what my body is asking me to do right now. Um, cognitively afterwards, I can be sorry. But in that moment, that's my reward. I don't have what, what, what's necessary in between for me to do that. The other piece you have to think about is that when I, um, when I have difficulties with what is tomorrow, what is yesterday, what is today, what is this morning, this afternoon, this evening, when those concepts are removed from your understanding, then what does it mean to wait? What does it mean that I have to wait when my parent tells me to wait or when my teacher tells me to wait? It, it, it's not, it doesn't have a place. It doesn't have a construct in my mind because so many of our kids are locked in just this moment. This is my moment. And so many parents will say, Maud, it feels to me like I'm teaching him the same thing over and over and over, like he's never been exposed to it before. And I've said it a million times, if not a, a million and one times, because in that moment, all of the past is gone. It's only that moment that exists. And then when you talk to him afterwards, yeah, he gets it because he's verbal and he's cognitively strong enough. So he gets it. But that is not what he's getting when the instinct starts arising again next week, Wednesday. And he does exactly the same behavior. So when we target, like we said earlier, um, behavior types of therapies in terms of rewards and those pieces, it doesn't really have an impact if the child does not understand those constructs, if the child doesn't have an inkling on those constructs. For them, it's just this moment. And if you're saying to me, I must wait until Santa comes, when, when, when is that, right? Honey, it's just 10 more minutes and Santa's gonna come and we're gonna all open our presents. Okay, is it now? You know, I need it now, I want it now. And everything becomes an immediate gratification. Because also when I delay, it increases the anxiety. So the child also knows that if I can now get an immediate reward of my impulse, I can also curb my anxiety. So it also becomes a way of the, for the child to cope with a regulatory difficulty. And, and that's the part that people don't often get, that oftentimes it's a positive behavior from the child's viewpoint, but in our viewpoint, it is what we don't want to see. Yeah, the, those are such good points. And I think that, you know, things like advent calendars, um, the fact that they even exist, like the countdown until Christmas when Santa comes, every day you get to open a little window to find a toy or a chocolate or whatever, that sort of tells us that in the course of history, this is how we prepare children for the concept of waiting. And it's a developmental process and, and kids young neurotypical kids don't know how to wait. And so we have to remember that in, in most things, um, you know, when we're talking about development, everybody develops through these stages. It's just that our kids on the spectrum develop at a different pace and have some added challenges, but there were like, and they're working on things that neurotypical children might have mastered at a much, much younger age. 
and um, in my last podcast with Mary Beth Stark, she she said something that um, that really stuck with me, which, you know, when you think about it, she said, when you see, well, we're talking about non-speaking kids versus very verbal kids, but <clears throat> there's different assumptions, right? The assumption that the non-speaking child is somehow not intelligent. And she said a lot of times they have a lot of motor issues that go along with not being able to speak. So people think that the intelligence isn't there. And then on the other side of the coin, someone who's overly verbal, you expect them to have these social etiquettes in place because they're speaking like a, a normal human being. So they should understand that you need to wait, but they don't. <laughs> and so I think that's, um, that's a good point that you bring up that for us to really remember um, and, and yeah, remember that it, it's regulation. It's their sensory system. It's, it's all of these things driving them. It's not bad behavior. And I remember introducing my son to a friend of mine I hadn't seen in 20 years, a year and a half ago, we went out to visit in the summer and I can't remember what happened, but I mentioned something about autism and, and she said, well, that's how, that's how every kid would um, react. The difference is that um, other kids wouldn't ask the same thing over and over again. And your kid keeps asking over and over again, like, can I do that? No, sweetie, we're all done. Can I do that? No, sweetie, we're all done. Can I do that? Like, just doesn't take no for an answer or whatever. So I see that all the time with our son, all the time. We, he has to ask the question 8,000 billion times and across, you know, a three month period, the same question every day, multiple times. <laughs> so, and he's, um, when we're preparing for a trip to Disney World, it was like, what's after Disney? What's after Disney? What's after Disney? Oh, you'll be going back to school. What's after Disney? You'll be going back to school. Like eight trillion times. We've talked about this and he'll say, we're going back to school. But it's like that urge to ask doesn't stop. But what's a good sign, Daria, is that he's starting to add that to his vocabulary. What are we doing after? Mm. You're not saying after. He's already saying after, okay. which means he's getting ready. Um, those are the little golden moments that we want to hold on to, even though we're going to hear that one million times. But we want to say, you know, it's so good that he's using the vocabulary, which means he's gaining the understanding of that passage of time. Um, and that there is something that's next, that there's something that's before, that there's something that's after. And those pieces precede. It's sort of in between understanding, you know, morning, noon, and night. Um, you know, if you first have that idea, um, and before that is preceded by knowing when I'm going to sleep at night and the daytime I'm awake. Um, and then you get into this piece where the vocabulary starts getting there. And now what has to follow is the, the nervous system's maturity to be able to enact that passage of time. But you know, it's, it's quite important what you said earlier about what she said at your last podcast, because it's a very sad situation. I have met so many nonverbal kids with incredible intelligence, but because they're not verbal, they don't know we want to know their thoughts. So they don't, we don't know what they're thinking. So we assume. And I think that's the part that I want to scream off the rooftops forever and a day, as long as I'm doing this kind of work. Please stop 
assuming that you know that the behavior means a certain thing. Stop assuming unless somebody has figured it out for you, with you, or you figured it out, what it means for that child. That's the emphasis. We have to think like the child's mind. The child cannot match our mind with a developmental delay and the diagnosis to boot. Yet we keep expecting the child to do things according to our timeline, our sequence, our structure, and our expectations. But in his mind, what's happening in his mind? In that child who has that impulsivity, he's capturing only this moment. He's not thinking of the rewards of later. He's not thinking, oh, last week when I did that, I lost my iPad time for two hours. That wasn't fun. He's not thinking that. He's just, at this moment, it's an instinctive urge in my primal brain that's not reaching even my cognitive brain, that's asking me to find release in an action that I perhaps know is going to get maybe um, not something I need to do, but I cannot stop myself from doing it. And then you would say, but more, then there is a little bit of cognition in there. Yes, at some stage, the cognition does start coming in, but not sufficiently. So it's all about the continuum of development. Some kids, they have nothing, no cognition going there. It's all instinct. And then you develop. And at some point, the cognitive does start coming in, but you still can't stop yourself. And then at some point, we saw that with the marshmallow exercise when, you know, the famous research that was done with the marshmallows. And kids at the same age who would not be able to wait until somebody returns to get two marshmallows. They will rather just have the one. And others who would wait and take a small bite, right? So you saw the grading what they did when they did that research. Um, so important that we, if I come back to that point, to know that each behavior is from the child's perception. We think that the child is naughty or he's stubborn or he's willful because he doesn't see things our way. Truth is, he's not even thinking of your way when he's impulsive. He's only thinking his window where he is right now. And that's what he's looking through. And that's what he's responding to. Um, when, you, when you think about it that way, it becomes a very complicated issue. And that's why Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who's a developmental psychologist in Vancouver, he always says um, that's why punishment and behavioral methods are so detrimental because what you just end up doing is holding what the child cares about dearly against them. If you say, I'm going to take away your iPad, if you don't do this, that kind of thing. And it just damages the relationship. And the relationship is everything that you need to develop and, and blossom without anxiety. Because if you can't be yourself and feel safe with the people that are raising you, then you're just not going to be free to have that development. And even in the podcast with Dr. Tippy, I think it was two podcasts ago, his uh, view is, is a lot more severe. He, he believes that any kind of punishment methods or what did he call it? Um, prompting um, can even thwart development and slow it down. So um, I think what you bring up is so important. And what I'd like to talk about um, 
now is what do we do about it? Because if we have an impulsive child who's okay in, there's gradients of it, but I'll give you some examples from, from our life. Um, my son from the time he was three until now he's 10, you know, we've gone from picking up and throwing things. He's still doing that, <laughs> but different kinds of throwing things, uh, being in the restaurant, knocking over people's water, knocking over people's coffee. Um, and then I had one podcast with Virginia Spielman about cause and effect, how, you know, instead of just impulsively knocking it over, he, there was the one time a couple of years ago now where he stopped, he looked at me and then he slowly slid the, the can of cider or whatever it was my husband had opened, slowly slid it and boop, off the end of the table, even though I was saying, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So she said, that's even a stage in development because he didn't just go knock it over. He's now looking for my reaction. He's doing it slowly, but he still needed to do it. And um, what are some of the other things he's done recently? Well, if he gets frustrated or, or we tell him no about something he really wants to do, he just erupts like, no, and he'll like, like clear whatever's on the table, just whip it across the room. And it can be dangerous. Like if it's a big toy like this, <laughs> which is on my table here, <laughs> if he gets mad and he whips that over, like if he's an only child, but what if he had a little baby sibling and it whacked the kid in the head and, and you know, so well, my advice to you is don't put it on the table, put it on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's hours of wonderful. You should see the imaginary play that he's starting to do, Maud. It's so cute. He, he and I, puts all the figures up there and they talk to each other and they That's do all this stuff. So it's really cute. So, it, you know, we have the, the risk reward for us has gone <laughs> the other way. So the, the reward is he's actually doing imaginary play and staying and, and having fun for an extended period of time. But yeah, if it gets to the point where he's overwhelmed or dysregulated, yeah, that thing can go flying. So, you know, so what, what do us parents I do? I know we want to talk about what to do, but I just want to say something about that. Sure. Because it's so important, so important, Daria, the risk reward. I think that's a podcast in itself because, you know, it's the balance of knowing that, you know what, if I, if I let go of this rule, I'm going to gain this amount of something else. Um, and I, I feel for parents. I so feel for them because how do they know the balance? You know, how do they know when is it too much? And if, and just being able for themselves to think, if I allow this now, what is my gain with him? Or with her in this situation um it's it's a very tough situation like i say a podcast or something else and i'm so glad that you have grasped that piece because it's important you know we're not going to be able to get further if we simply stick with again our expectation and we sometimes have to let go to see what's their expectation right anyway what do we do but but you know what um on that point that reminds me of um a conversation i had with dr tippy and i don't remember if it was on a podcast or not but um you know talking about how much we control right so we were talking about different situations like um in a school setting for instance where there's small controlled areas versus big areas which can be dysregulating because there's so much going on and he said well you know what the real world is out there how much are you going to control and show your child can do this and this and this in this super controlled environment? Then the second they get in the real world, they're lost. 
So you don't want to focus on controlling everything too much. And so I think that's that concept of risk reward, like you said, like I, I could, you know, we've already, you know, baby proofed the house, which is not baby proofing anymore, but you know, we can't have anything breakable around. We can't have glass figurines and decorations up or whatever. Um, um, you know, certain gifts I'll get for Christmas that are breakable, that are like something to put up somewhere. It's nice, but you know, it, it can't go in our house. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we've done as much as we can. And then when we go to other people's houses, we're like walking on eggshells, like, uh Oh, if we go to grandparents' house, what if he whips something against that glass lamp of theirs and it gets knocked over, you know, that kind of thing. But at the same time, yeah, like putting this big humongous PJ masks headquarters thing on the table, it's plastic, but it's still, can damage stuff. Um, oh, and also the chandelier above my head. Boy, we had a phase of throwing everything up into that chandelier. Socks, like the laundry would be, uh, I'd bring up the clean laundry, it'd be sitting there before I put it away. Every sock, I'd leave for a second, come back, every sock is up on the chandelier, and then standing on the chair trying to pull it down, I'm like, oh, he's gonna pull the chandelier on him. Like, it's one thing after another, but seeing, um, you know, having them sort of experience some of the natural consequences themselves while controlling for their safety. It's, it, it is a constant juggling act. So true. So true. And I'm, you know, again, I'm so gratified um, that you are contemplating that and that you're thinking <laughs> about that piece because there is no utopia out there. There's no real ideal. It's what works for your child at a given moment, you know, um, okay, so doing, well, I think we've already established that doing simply um, behavioral method is probably not going to be conducive to a great success. There is an amount of success to be gotten um, from that whole cognitive reward system. If the child has the ability to um, store long-term information to a very high degree. So what do I mean by that? First of all, I start working on regulation first. Um, and the program that I use for that is Tumata Sound Training plus occupational therapy. And I use a combination of that with reflex integration. And though that sets up the foundation. Foundation usually is, if you're talking about ASD, can take quite a while. And it does tax the parent's patience. Because um, it can be a little bit on the expensive side. Um, but it's really what works. And it's really, it's either doing that up front or going to OT once a week for the next 10, 12 weeks, years, right? So um, I would rather get in there now if I can and do high intensity work, um, if that's at all available to the clients. And these days you can do these things at home even with home machines. So there's a little bit more um, capability there. But I think the most important part for impulsivity is working on timing that there must be some type of timing intervention. That could mean your OT is doing her prone extension exercise and she's using a metronome beat while he is doing his exercise, that he's doing his jumping jack on a metronome beat. These days you can download an app for a metronome for free um, and just make sure that you're working never more than 54 beats per minute. Um, and then when you start working with a child, you can take it down as 32 beats per minute and work your way up to 54. If you go up higher than 54, you're working on a sports athlete. We don't need that. We just need function, right? So um, you can do anything with a metronome beat. 
You can go running on a metronome beat. You can do walking on a metronome beat. Um, but the child must be ready to receive the timing. And a dysregulated system does not receive timing. That's the key. That's the key that people don't get. They'll come to me and like I do a program called Interactive Metronome. And they say to me, no more, we tried Interactive Metronome. It doesn't work. I'm like, uh-huh. Because I can see the child. The child's still dysregulated. Well, luckily, it hasn't been for naught because the brain doesn't forget. But the moment he's regulated, he can access the IM, the interactive metronome that he's had, because the brain always lodges every single thing that you're exposed and experienced to. It's why trauma is so hard for, for people to overcome, because the brain does not forget. Okay, so timing must come after you've worked on regulation to some degree. Some regulation we will, will always be with us in a while. You and I still have to regulate. I am drinking coffee with you right now because it's the end of a long day and I've had quite a busy day, more than I've ever expected on the last Friday of 2019. <laughs> so, and when I was in the parking lot of the outlet mall um, in traffic and it took about 40 minutes to move two feet, I thought I was going to lose it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy how, how people are just out there and it's just like, not, it's just, it doesn't stop. And, but not just that for most of my day, I was spending at home, Daria. It's calls. Calls are coming in and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I have skeleton staff right now because it's over the high days and holidays. We, we just can't cope. But anyway, so that the, um, like I said, life is becoming too busy, right? Too, too much tax on our time. And, um, and it is hard for parents because, um, you know, work on regulation and it's not something you work on for a few weeks or a few months and then it's fixed. Yeah. Like, you know, we've been working on it since our son was three, four years old. He's 10. We're still working on it. Um, it just takes different forms and, and the developmental progress that you'll see. And I'm going to come out with, um, a new aspect of the website in the new year that tracks uh, my son's developmental progress as, as an example for other parents to really see how the progress will happen in this particular child. In other children, it might be faster, it might be slower, it might be different. But I think in all the podcasts we've done together, you really give a good point um, about how you know all of these pieces come together. And every time we've talked about my son, you'll say, He's doing this now. He didn't do that a year ago. And it's, it's slow, but it's steady. That's right. And that's what I go for. I don't go for any overnight cures because I don't think they exist. But I do push hard when I'm pushing. But then I give the child time to adapt to it. And we need for them to have that time. You know, as we said, the, the child remembers all those years of feeling out of control of feeling disorganized and the fear that's within that child that if things are going well that that might return so the child needs quite a ways away from that that time period when things were disorganized before they can finally settle into the new and create an adaptive response that is new and moving forward into a different regulatory realm um, and, and what people want to do is say, you know, we've been working on regulation for so long, for so long, you know, can we just move on something else now? No, no, you can't. 
you can start transitioning if the time is there, but not if the child's not ready. It's got to be, and that's what Greenspan was so strong about. At the center, at the core of everything is the child's intrinsic motivation to want to move forward and to feel secure enough to move forward. That was at the core of where he springboarded so much of his model for us today. So the, 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 um, the piece that, that we need to think about is that when do I start that timing is a crucial piece. And for that, I think get a professional involved that knows what they're doing so that you can know when to transition over. But what it's gonna take, it's gonna take really involved, keep keeping timing into, this, into the mix. Think about this. What do we do with little ones when they toddlers and they start speaking and in more sentences and start becoming huge, huge vocabulary start to grow, right? We do nursery rhymes. We sing to them. They sing with us. Our first time that we teach the ABCs, what do we do? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Why do we add rhythm? Now, rhythm isn't timing. Rhythm is more left ear and, and timing is more right ear. And together they create a tempo in the brain. But rhythm sets up the piece for timing. So also, when you're still working on the regulatory piece, start thinking of rhythm. That's why we talk about co-reciprocity, to getting to the rhythm and the matching of the child. Just using the DR floor time techniques and that, that piece I just mentioned is already setting up the readiness for that timing piece. That's why I thought Greenspan was so absolutely amazing. Because I had these parts before I trained the hour for a time. And when I saw his model and I saw where the individual differences was fitting into each of those six to nine levels, I thought, how absolutely genius. Sorry, I'm going to get that. Um, how genius he was in, in, in making sure that that developmental trajectory is also the same to developmental trajectory that we follow in the central nervous system. So that emotional regulation and sensory regulation coincide in these steps in different ways. So we can't push the child too fast too soon. That's a really big piece of it. But I'm going to have to do something. I've got a new phone <laughs> and I can't get this phone to do what I wanted to do. Yeah, um, um, so, what, so that's the part that I want people to get more than anything else. We can all go to interactive metronome and get a timing course. We can all go to tomatoes and get a tomatoes course. We can get to reflex integration. We can get to an OT. But the when is a big key. You're not doing anything for not, but I like to do something when we can really see what difference it makes. And, and that's why we follow that developmental trajectory and we don't veer away from it. And we move into the bridge of that piece. And usually you're ready for timing when you start working on practice. Okay, so I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I've noticed as our son is starting to show more, um, um, more practice, whatever, you can tell that he's able to plan better and sequence better. Um, all of these things have slowly been coming together a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, and one thing I did want to bring up was um, that 
impulsivity can look so different. Uh, we've given the example of my son who's very hyperactive and his impulsivity um, and his dysregulation might be to explode. But there are a lot of kids on the spectrum who are really quiet and they don't necessarily move a lot and you don't have to ever worry about them breaking anything in the house. Um, and they may have a few words or not, but they are mostly more calm but their impulsivity might take a different stance um, where they're, they're um, I remember Greenspan specifically distinguishing between rigidity and impulsivity, um, where um, the child is just more rigid, not open to, to as many ideas. Is that, um, where do you see that in terms of impulsivity? So you'll try and get the child to be more flexible about doing something and no, they will not. They will stay and want to stay in that safe zone like um, Dr. Rick Solomon talks about in the play project. They want to say, stay and not change. It, that's their comfort zone. I see that as still being impulsive, but the impulsivity goes into rigidity. My impulse is to stay put and don't you dare move me away from this, right? It, it's that that rigidity has never been a willful response. That rigidity is to create the boundary within which I feel safe to move. Um, and so, so it's not like the impulsive behavior like we would normally talk about impulsive behavior, but it actually is the same instinctual process that comes from deep within um, and expressed in a different way. And we have to also be careful that sometimes that very same a child who is that rigid child is also the shutdown child, the one that's so quiet and it doesn't, you, you know, they kind of disappear in the background. They're also the shutdown kid that in order for them to regulate and they don't want to get out of control like the disorganized child, they don't regulate at all. I've had clients who brought me their sweet kids who are a little heap in the middle of the room who's too afraid to move anywhere, right? They want to put themselves on a swing, gravitationally insecure, and, and you just feel for this little body that's so afraid and so anxious, right? And then I say to the parent, be careful what you ask for. Because in the midst of it, I'm going to make that child a little bit more disorganized again. And hopefully it won't last long, but he's got to get through that phase. We all go through that. You and I went through it. The terrible twos, the four, four years old when we started to become a big boy and a big girl. Remember what that growth process looked like. We have to get to a period of disorganized to know our boundaries and to know my boundary from your boundary. So disorganization has a key feature in helping the growth process to understand the use of cortisol to understand stress, to be able to cope with stress when it happens and not become disorganized as we mature. So, and that's, that, those are key pieces that people don't talk often enough, I think, about. Was that the right language? I don't know. <laughs> well, we've definitely been seeing boundary testing in, in our son. And it's also interesting, um, I brought him to the bookstore and he loves PJ masks. So he goes right to that section. And then I realize, wait a second, when we give him access to YouTube kids, these are all of the things that he's watching. They're all in that age three to five section. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like he's not even caring about the baby stuff anymore. He's not even caring about the, 
the, you know, whatever superheroes and stuff that come later, he is totally in that section. So I'm like, that gives me a really good clue and validation of what we already know that that's where he is developmentally. Those are the stories that he's interested in. His school had some kind of book drive and he went there and, and I double checked with the teacher because I was thinking, did they guide him to these books? No, he specifically went and picked out these two random books, Pete the Cat's 12 Groovy Days of Christmas and the other one, the Penguin Penguin Somebody's First Christmas or whatever. And, and then I saw that Pete the Cat right at the bookstore in the PJ Masks section. There's a whole bunch of other Pete the Cat stuff. I said, hey, there's that Pete the Cat that's in your other book. And so it was really interesting to me to see, like, like you said, development guides everything. And, and it is just amazing that how it unfolds. And if we don't get back to those basics and that wonderful model that Greenspan laid out, like the development, meet the child where they are developmentally, take into account their individual differences, uh, the I and the relationship. So they feel safe, the R. It's just, uh, it always comes back to those three things. Always does, always does, Daria, and it doesn't disappoint. And, and with this, I want to say to all the parents out there, it doesn't mean it's going to take forever, right? It feels uh, like it, but it... <laughs> it's, 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 it's what, what Daria, what you're so eloquently always talk about, and which is why I always enjoy speaking with you, is um, that you, you know the route your child has taken, and you've learned how to see like now with your example of Pete the cat, um, learn to look for the signs that they are doing. And I think what uh, many, many, many parents are exposed to is evaluations upon evaluations upon evaluations that tell them what their child cannot do. And the focus becomes on what the child is not capable of. And then we miss these beautiful little pieces. Yes, he's still throwing things by impulse on the refrigerator, but he's also choosing a book about Pete the cat, right? And, and he's arguing with us like a toddler does not do. He's finally out of toddlerhood. Eight years of a toddler, he's past that now. He's testing the boundaries. He's, That's right. no, I don't want to. <laughs> right, and, and mom, I, I, I just want to warn you, there's a time period coming when he's going to come into his own self. <laughs> I think he is starting. He is, it, we're seeing glimmers of it. <laughs> oh, it's going to be an exciting time, an exciting time. You know, um, I've learned so much from, I've got some families that I only carry them by video and I work with a child actually on video only um, and send videos back and forth and the child shows me something and then I will talk to the child. And I've learned so much about some beautiful, wonderful um, autistic individuals out there that's given me so much insight you know um and and really the mantra of don't don't assume don't assume anything because the stuff i've seen that the kids are thinking about beyond that impulsive behavior beyond the stimming of in front of the eyes beyond beyond the stuff that we're looking at and that we're wondering about this kid but what's happening on inside um, is, is just so much more profound than what we can fathom. Um, and so therefore, look for those golden moments. Look for those golden moments. They're there and they want to be met. The child wants to be met, no matter if the behavior sometimes tells you otherwise. Well, thank you. Um, if people want to find out more about MOD or MOD's clinic, 
or any of the things we've talked about today, you can look at affectautism.com. You can look up MAUD, M-A-U-D-E. Um, this podcast airs January 2020, so you can find that in at affectautism.com. I'll put links to things we've talked about, links to some of the past podcasts I referred to. So um, again, thanks, Maud, and we'll definitely talk again soon. Thank you, Daria, for having me. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.